This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome back to a Tim Beckless edition of Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice, Bill Landis. And live from Arizona, Ari Wasserman. We are the Cleveland.com Ohio State coverage team. Season is over. Changes have happened. We're going to talk about all of them. We have a lot of questions from you guys that we're going to answer as we talk about all these things. Um, if for some reason you don't know this, of course they know it. I don't need to like lay it out, right? Tim Beck's gone. Ryan Day from the 49ers is in as QB coach. Um, and there are reports that Kevin Wilson is coming, the former Indiana head coach, to probably run the offense. We don't know exactly how that fits in. So we're going to talk about all that. Um, but just so you know, Ari, again, is in Arizona because he's doing some recruiting stuff out there. And he's on the phone. So Ari, say hello to the people. What's up, guys? He sounds crisp, right, Bill? Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Um, all right, so should we dive into questions? Yeah. I, I, I have one I want to start with. <clears throat> okay. I think it's an interesting way to get into this. From our boy Bo Brammer, at Bo Brammer on Twitter. Do the coaching changes happen without the blowout loss to Clemson? Yeah, I think so. Um, at least one of them. I think we're all under the impression now, just with the timing and how it all worked out, that Tim Beck was on his way out regardless. Because it sounds like Tom Herman really wanted him at Texas. Um, and I think Texas is kind of a dream scenario for Tim Beck. I know he's from Ohio. He's from Youngstown. But he's coached a lot in the state of Texas. Has a lot of ties there. Was a high school coach there. And I think we we know that it was sort of a, a team operation here at Ohio State with Tim Beck and Ed Warner and Urban Meyer calling plays and running the offense. And it sounds like at Texas it's sort of going to be his show under the leadership of Tom Herman. But he got a promotion, I think, out of this. So that, I think, would have happened either way. Look, I, I don't think that it takes four quarters of football or four quarters of bad football for Urban Meyer to diagnose an issue. And I think a lot of times when you look at, you know, Ohio State's coaching staff and when things go wrong, I mean, every year there's somebody who kind of seems to be the target. And it felt like the Tim Beck target was correct because of, the regression or the lack of improvement from the quarterbacks and the offensive passing game was, which he is a huge part of. Um, so I don't know that it took a 31 nothing loss for them to realize that. I just think it accentuated it. It seems like to me that these kind of movements were going to be good for Beck, and he probably would have done it even if they scored 50 points in this game because it's a promotion. But at the same time, I think Urban Meyer is smart enough to know when there's an issue before things happen. I don't know that he was necessarily blindsided by the results of the Fiesta Bowl. So here's here's what I'm wondering about after all this shook down. So the game was Saturday. 
Ari got a message from somebody. Was that Sunday or Monday, Ari? It was the day after the game. Okay, on Sunday. Ari got a message from somebody on Sunday that said, um, Tim Beck's going to Texas. And we didn't write it because it wasn't certainly anything close to a reliable source um, to write it. But now, in hindsight, now that it actually happened, um, that was the day after the game. And to give credit where credit is due on the, on the Buckeye Grove Scout message board, there have been discussions about Kevin Wilson and Ohio State for at least a couple weeks. Buckeye Grove Rivals message board. My apologies. I get confused sometimes. I don't want to... This is real. I want to give the credit where the credit is due. The Buckeye Grove website is part of the Rivals Network, yeah. their message board. If you are a member there, you have seen discussions about Kevin Wilson. This was underway. This was underway. It doesn't happen this quick unless it's underway. So this was going to happen regardless. And so now my question is, what effect did all of this have on the preparation for the game? So Luke Fickle was going, but everybody knew Luke Fickle was going. And Luke Fickle was going to be a head coach at Cincinnati, and we've seen that happen before. We knew Tom Herman was going to be the head coach at Houston when they won the national title in 2014. Those were guys who were being publicly promoted to lead programs because of the success they had had at Ohio State. Tim Beck is a guy who, in my opinion, has not been very good at Ohio State and was going to Texas and knew it before the game was played. And this Kevin Wilson thing didn't come out of nowhere. So something was moving with that before the game was played. So I understand there's lots of behind-the-scenes things that happen. This is big boy school, guys trying to get jobs and get more money and get promotions and not be unemployed, whatever. What does that mean for what happened in the Clemson game when this was an offense that had, had issues all year and they were already moving pieces of what was going to be going on next year that were starting to move before the Clemson game was played? I don't know. Do either of you think it actually had an effect? They were bad all year. It wasn't like what we saw in the Fiesta Bowl was new. I think already said it. It was a sort of a culmination of a terrible offensive season. So I don't know. I don't think like Tim Beck had one foot in Austin and one foot in Columbus and didn't prepare the way he was supposed to for the Fiesta Bowl. And I don't know. We don't know what Ed Warner's future is, but I would like to think, I guess, that he was fully invested in preparing Ohio State for the Fiesta Bowl. They just weren't a very good staff. They didn't, they didn't click the way they needed to to put together a good offensive game plan. I don't think that was anything different from what we saw earlier in the season. It's just so fascinating because usually when changes are being made, you're not on the verge of potentially winning a title. And that's why it's different. Even from two, two years ago, changes were made after they lost to the uh, Michigan State Spartans in the Big Ten Championship game, and that was after they were eliminated from postseason play in terms of you know playing for a championship. So, you know, I think that if Beck knew he was leaving, I mean, there's been talk about Beck leaving for a long time now, and you have another job, I, I guess you, you go all in with the team that you have with the hopes that you can do something to win a national championship. But I wonder, more than anything, if Urban Meyer and his staff knew going into this playoff run that this team wasn't going to measure up. So that does cast a little bit of a different light to me, and I gave Tim Beck credit for being the offensive coach who came out and spoke with the media after that shutout. And again, I didn't see Ed Warner and I didn't see Zach Smith in that locker room. But now it, it makes you wonder, and I think I saw someone else suggest this, if Tim Beck was just making sure on his way out the door 
that he knew he was leaving, he had a chance to blame somebody else before he left. Like, that's not my fault. Because he said some stuff about, we didn't have an identity. we got to find an identity. And now Tom Herman's at Texas saying, you know, the negativity is misplaced. Everyone knows Tim Beck didn't call the plays at Ohio State. So this this whole Do you way, think there's any truth to that? You, I know you were like, you went on a mini Twitter rant about that stuff. God, I'm, I'm so, I almost don't want to talk about it because it just, this whole thing. Tim Beck has just riled me up for two years and I'm sick of it. I'm glad he's gone. Ugh. Go ahead. Well, I just think, like, I was never under the impression that Tim Beck was in any way whatsoever the primary play caller. And his work with the quarterbacks is separate from his work as the offensive coordinator and, and his role in play calling. But I think I buy Tim Beck was not the play caller at Ohio State. And if you're looking to point fingers at the play calling specifically, I don't think I'd point them at Tim Beck. I think I'd put them at, point them at Urban Meyer and Ed Warner before I pointed them at Tim Beck. It's under my understanding that Ed Warner was the primary play caller, and then there were secondary people who brought in their input, like Zach Smith and Tim Beck, before it got to the head coach who approved the play. That was my understanding before the game of how it worked. So I think that the primary play caller and offensive coordinator of this team was Ed Warner, and I think there was banter over the headsets with Beck and Smith before Urban Meyer gave the okay. That's how I understand it. And I, I believe that to be true. I think that's a fair representation. I don't think that any of us have ever thought otherwise. It was confusing in 2015 when Ed was still on the sideline and Tim Beck was the guy upstairs. And there was that time in the middle of the year when they made it sound like, well, it's hard for Ed to call the game on the sideline, so Tim Beck in the booth is taking a little more of, of responsibility, a little bigger role. And then, of course, it was a great big deal when Ed went up to the booth after the Michigan State loss. And that solved everything. And then this year, Ed Warner and Tim Beck were up there together. But I wrote in the Goodbye Tim Beck column, again, I play calling blame, that's what we want to call it. I agree. I go Warner, one, Meyer, two, Beck, three. Quarterback regression, lack of quarterback development, I go Beck, one, Beck, two, Beck, three, Beck, 100. So if I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of a, of a, of a juke. To like try to say, well, the neg negativity is misplaced. He's not the play caller. Uh, that's, that's not where my negativity is coming from. My neg negativity about Tim Beck is directed elsewhere to what you see on the field with the quarterback. So, yeah, okay. But he's also part of that role. And like I said, of course, at a news conference, you're going to introduce your new hire and say all the good stuff. If Ohio State just hung 50 on Clemson, they'd be talking about how important Tim Beck was to the play calling yeah. at Ohio State. That's true. I also like they put out the um, Tom Herman tweeted out a graphic of Tim Beck with like Ohio State stats and it was like number one scoring, number two total offense, number one quarterback efficiency. And it's like all fake stats. Those numbers are not representative of what Ohio State's offense was this year. They're representative of what Ohio State's offense was against Bowling Green and Rutgers. Like it, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors to this. But but by the way, in that graphic, was there not an asterisk at the bottom of all the great Ohio State stats that said asterisk? Tim Beck was not involved with the play calling, <laughs> and therefore gets no credit for this. Wasn't that asterisk there? No, oh, it wasn't. Oh, oh, no. oh, there wasn't? <laughs> the graphic was just blowing smoke about stuff that he had nothing to do with and is based on putting 77 on Bowling Green. I am really – this is how it works. Listen, I mean, nobody's naive about this. Everybody's out for themselves. People hire their friends. Everybody's looking at the next job all the time. 
They're not, you know, they do their best by the kids when they're there, but a lot of the guys are in it to see where they can go next. But the way this has shaken down the last year just has grinded me more than it usually does. Because it, I don't, this is what bothers me in the end. And I did go on a mini Twitter rant when I woke up. What day is it? I don't even know what day it is. It's Thursday. I don't want anyone to sit here and talk about all the faults of JT Barrett as a quarterback while Tim Beck rides off to the sun, into the sunset through the cacti and the dusty tumbleweeds to his, quote, promotion in Texas and leaves behind the wreckage of a quarterback room that he coached into the ground for two years. And he gets to go stand up at a news conference and have Tom Herman talk about how great he is. And JT Barrett gets to stand here and have people wonder if a, a freshman should start ahead of him next year. That's my biggest problem with any of this. If the coaches want to play the blame game behind the scenes, which they do, that's fine. But I don't want to let them do that and have the unpaid college players get the abuse from people for what went wrong with this offense. Because what went wrong with this offense sits primarily on Ed Warner, Tim Beck, and Urban Meyer's oversight of that. And that's it. I buy that. What's that's not a to headache. Buy? <laughs> it just bothers me. It just the whole thing bothers me. Does is, am I just overreacting to this? Is just this one of those things? I mean, the <clears throat> offense wasn't great. Whatever stuff happens, I'll get some new coaches. It's the way the business works. No, I think I I, I certainly feel the same way a little bit about JT Barrett, and I think we'll talk about him more in a second. Um, it wasn't his fault. It was partly his fault. He didn't play well this year. And I think even though Tim Beck, I think, was not a great quarterbacks coach, you know, a little bit of the onus falls on the player still. And JT wasn't great, and I think he'd admit he wasn't great. But to sit here and think that that guy is a terrible quarterback and that all of Ohio State's problems were based on JT's inability to throw the ball downfield this year, um, I think is a little misplaced and a little unfair. So uh, I agree with that. I would put more blame on the coaches than I would on any of the players. All right. Let's go to another question. From um, at Thundershaker, can Ari rank Kanye's albums? We need to cleanse the palate a little bit. Are we, oh, we're doing this? Yeah. Because just, we, have to, we have to do something meaningless before we get back in because that was really heated, right? Yeah. yeah, I need to take a break. First of all, I can't rank Kanye's albums because I think that Kanye has been trash for four years or five years because he's a <laughs> lunatic. But I saw the complex list, and that's what this question is based on. I guess Complex Magazine ranked the lists of Kanye's albums, and like the two classics that made Kanye one of the greatest rappers of all time at a certain point in our hip-hop history were like ranked five and six or four and five, and it was completely ridiculous, and I think that that was clickbait cotton candy. Because there's no possible way they think that Yeezus and this, the albums that he's released the last few years, while he doesn't know what planet he's on himself, rank better than the ones that made him famous to begin with. End of rant. See, now that, see, that's, in Ari's world, that was heated. That was yeah. like, I was that trying was to call Tim Beck rant. <laughs> <laughs> Doug is to Tim Beck as Ari is to Kanye West. Um, all right. Let's get back into uh, some of this more this this coaching stuff. Um, here's a question, and I think this is this gets into an interesting overall issue. It's from a JF Chenger. 
on Twitter. Can you discuss the uh, hires of Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson, the impact that will have on recruiting? So, um, Bill, can you just, again, for maybe anybody who's not 100% aware of where we stand with things, can you reset where we are with Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson and what we know, and then we'll get into the recruiting aspect? Sure. Ryan Day is is hired um, pending a background check, is what the Ohio State release said a few days ago. He was a San Francisco 49ers quarterbacks coach last year. Philadelphia Eagles quarterbacks coach the year before that, and before that he was at Boston College with Steve Adazio coaching quarterbacks and running the offense as the offensive coordinator. Um, so he is 100% in the fold. Kevin Wilson um, is not officially just yet, as far as we know. I believe the first report came from. Well, I guess like you said, it's been on it's been on Buckeye Grove for some time, and then I think it really picked up steam when Bruce Feldman of Fox Sports tweeted out the other night. Uh, or the other day, excuse me, that Kevin Wilson was coming to be Ohio State's offensive coordinator. Um, I have no reason to believe that's not going to happen. The thing that makes it a little bit of a sticky situation is that Ohio State's only allowed nine assistant coaches, and right now they have nine assistant coaches, and Kevin Wilson would be the 10th. There is proposed legislation uh, that I think will be voted on in April about adding a 10th assistant, but that hasn't happened yet, so I'm wondering if maybe that might be the holdup as it pertains to Kevin Wilson, uh, but I think we all think and seems to be the case that he will eventually be named Ohio State's offensive coordinator. So, given all that, here's my question of where things are going at the moment. Urban Meyer has always said that, like, the most important thing when hiring an assistant is recruiting. Right, Ari? That is the case. So, Luke Fickle was a good recruiter, right, Ari? That is also the case. <laughs> the the new hire there, Bill Davis, Urban's best man in his wedding, is a guy who's been in the NFL for two decades, hasn't been in college. But it seems to me that the selling point there is he's a teacher. He's been in the NFL. He knows what's up. Kind of like Greg Schiano. Now, Greg Schiano's different. He was a college head coach. He obviously can recruit also. Um, Ryan Day is coming from the NFL. Kevin Wilson is first and foremost, I think, an offensive mind, a very well-respected offensive mind. It seems like the last couple hires are leaning more teacher than recruiter. Now, you have to do it all. You have to do it all. But, Ari, what do you, what do you think this means for recruiting? And, and is, here's my question, maybe. Is maybe one of their recruiting strategies now selling the teaching, selling, because they already put this out on Bill Davis, I think, and Greg Schiano and Ryan Day, that they are selling the NFL experience. And so maybe if those guys don't have a million relationships with high school coaches in a certain area, but they are now going to sell, look at us, we have guys who have coached at the highest level and can teach you how to get there. And that is now a big selling point for their recruiting. Well, the thing that I've wondered... Um is that I wonder, and maybe it's not the case because they brought in Greg Schiano, but sometimes I wonder if there's one extreme or the other. It's like your staff is either all really good recruiters who have spent their entire lives in college, or they're NFL guys who haven't spent much time recruiting, and it's like there needs to be a balance. So I guess whether or not you like or love Zach Smith and the way that he behaves, I guess he is one of those college coaches purely who is known for being a recruiter, and then you have a Shiano and a Davis who is an NFL-type guy. I think they need to have a balance. 
And I think it's, and I wonder if they were too heavy on the other type. And that's why they had a lack of efficiency when it comes to development and production on offense this year. And maybe that's kind of a hot take. I don't know. We, I mean, what's we, more important, do you think? The idea of having guys who can teach football and develop at the highest level or having a hot shot recruiter? Because I would argue at Ohio State that anybody can recruit to Ohio State if they've got a good personality. And I think the idea of developing the roster that you have and getting the talent to perform at its highest level is what takes that talent and makes them a national championship team. I just wanted to start with wondering what you guys' thoughts were on that. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a, yeah, that was a good, good hot take. So now they have guys who I believe can coach football better than the guys that they had on their staff a few years ago. And I don't think that counts Luke Fickle, but if you bring in guys who coach football at the highest level and can develop talent and know what talent is, then they're in a good spot. Now, when it comes to recruiting, I think that, of course, the number one thing that anybody can say beyond the graphics and the winning and the uniforms and the stadium and the facilities is what? What do kids want? They want to go to the NFL. Yeah. They want to get paid. Everybody does. That's the dream. So you have guys who say not only can we do that and look at the results here at Ohio State of turning people into NFL talents, we have guys who are better off now in this world to make you an NFL talent and to get you to that level because they know what it looks like. And Shiano was an interesting hire because he built a program at Rutgers. So he knew exactly what recruiting is all about. It'll be interesting to see what Bill Davis does, but I know that he's already reached out to some of Ohio State's 2017 prospects that they're still trying to land, specifically in the secondary, and he's selling what? The NFL. So I think from a recruiting standpoint, Ohio State's rolling right now. And they're going to continue to roll because they're one of the five programs in college football that have what they have. Not a lot of teams can sell what Ohio State sells. So you bring in guys who can coach the team, who can develop those guys and get them ready for the NFL. And oh, by the way, they'll recruit and they'll be fine. I like it. Good point. All right, here's a question that I have that I want to ask, and then we'll get back to uh, reader, tweeter questions. Has Urban Meyer lost his offensive mojo? The thing that I find the most interesting in all this, in questions for two years about Ohio State offensive creativity, is this is Urban Meyer's offense. And, again, I thought it was a very big deal when you had Cardale Jones and Darren Lee, two guys who were on the team last year, who were big parts of winning a national championship in 2014, after the Clemson loss, very vocally on Twitter, calling out the play calling. And when you do that, Urban Meyer is a part of that. It's his offense. Everything he says. It, when you come here, when I hire you, and I'm paraphrasing him what he has said publicly, when I hire you, when you come here, you aren't bringing your offense. You aren't coming in here to do your thing. You are coming here to run this offense, to facilitate the Ohio State offense. So in all of this, I find it very interesting that Urban Meyer, who is an all-time great coach, one of the top 10 coaches in college football history, maybe much higher than that by the time he's done, has won three national championships, saved the Ohio State program, is 61-6 and here. And of course, you say all that, because that's undisputed. That's, that's who he is. But then you can also look at other things that you wonder about. 
how did Urban Meyer let an offense get to this point where people are screaming about the lack of creativity and the lack of playmakers and the lack of ability to change and adjust? Because in the end, it's his offense. What do we think happened? What do? How did we get to this point? I think you get a little comfortable. I mean, they won a national championship two years ago, and I mean that that offense in 2014 wasn't anything crazy. It was was Urban Meyer's offense. The thing they had that they haven't had the last two years was the ability to throw the ball down the field. Um, Didn't happen last year. Happened more last year than it did this year. Didn't happen this year at all. Um, I think he might have lost his offensive mojo a little bit. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, Which is why I think you see a hire like Kevin Wilson who is an outsider, who is an offensive mind that Urban Meyer uh, admires a lot, has studied for his entire career, um, did some different things when he was at Indiana and Oklahoma. They sort of have like the same offensive principles, but operate in a different way. And that's why I think the Kevin Wilson hire is, is a good one, because I think Urban Meyer needs someone in the offensive coaching room who's sort of not afraid to speak his mind and maybe challenge Urban Meyer is the right thing. And I think Tom Herman had a little bit of that. Um, he wasn't afraid to sort of dictate what the offense did. And, and that's not to say that Ed Warner and Tim Beck weren't. Um, but I got the feeling that they were. And I got the feeling that this was very much Urban Meyer's show and everyone was afraid to question what Urban Meyer wanted. I don't think Kevin Wilson's going to do that. I think Urban Meyer trusts him enough to value his opinion. And I think you're going to see not a, a wholly different offense, because like you said, the offense is the offense. But I think it's going to be called differently. Um, what we saw over the last two years, I think, was very basic stuff. And there's more to this offense than what we've seen over the last two years. And it just got very vanilla and very predictable. We, they shouldn't be in a position where, where the three of us are sitting in the press box and calling out what plays are going to happen before the ball is snapped. And that happened a lot over the last few years. And we're not trained defensive coaches. So if we're doing that, imagine what Brent Venables is doing when he's standing on the sideline in the Fiesta Bowl. That guy knew every play Ohio State was running before they ran it. They had no chance in that game. They had to be more creative. And I think Kevin Wilson's a guy that doesn't. And the question that I've always had and the thing that I've thought about all year is why? Why was it basic? Why was it at a rudimentary level? And I sometimes question, and I think to myself, well, we hold this team to a high standard because of the recruits that they bring in and the talent that they have, and they should be able to out-talent and out-do things with just the people they have on their team. And then on the other hand, it's like, well, they did make the playoff after losing half of their team. So I'm just wondering, why do you think it was basic? Do you think it was from a lack of coaching, a combination of it, or do you think it's possible that maybe the players just weren't ready to run it at its highest level? I think they're afraid to make mistakes and be aggressive. And they play 12 games in a regular season, and 10 of them, they can just line up and run the same play on every on every snap, and they'd win because they're that much better. Um, I, I just think it was a sort of an unwillingness to get creative in the games where they had to, which is why you saw close games against Michigan State and close games against Michigan and an embarrassing <coughs> loss to Clemson. It's like the thing we talk about all the time, like when the talent is equal, and maybe the talent's not quite equal with Michigan State and Michigan, but it certainly was with Clemson. But when it is equal, you have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone a little bit, which I thought they did very well in the championship run two or three years ago and did not do it all over the last two seasons. Um, and here's the thing that affects my thinking about all of this. Um, Urban Meyer's a legend. Ed Warner has done very good things here at Ohio State. He was a very big part of their success. Um, and Tim Beck was not a part of Ohio State 
at its highest level. And then his room and his, he also had someone on the offensive play calling. Those were two things that became an issue when he got here. So that always has affected my judgment of how I look at this. That in the end, the offense stops with Urban. But what do you, I mean, what? He's Urban Meyer. Like, like no one's going to sit, sit here and like, like rip Urban Meyer. I mean, that would be insane. But that was always to me of like, Tim Beck got here and stuff got worse. And I don't think it was a coincidence. So was it all his fault? No, it wasn't all his fault. I think Ed Warner got promoted above his level of expertise, which is the kind of thing that happens in the corporate world all the time. And I think that Urban had a situation where he had Tom Herman and Ed Warner as co-offensive coordinators, but we know Tom Herman was the play caller, first among equals. Tom Herman left, and you're left with a situation of, well, what are you going to do? I mean, Ed Warner wants the job. Plus, they were, I mean, they were rolling. So, of course, I mean, you almost don't have a choice other than promote that guy. And I think Ed Warner was not as good in the number one role as Tom Herman was. And I don't think Tim Beck was as good in the 1A role as Ed Warner had been. And um, I almost wonder, I mean, it's a drastic measure sometimes. Um, but you almost look back and wonder, like, where, like, was there going to be a moment when, like, or Ed, when Urban Meyer said, like, enough is enough, I'm calling the game. You know, like, which yeah. he has a million things going on, but, like, the heck with it. Give me the sheets. You guys can tell me what you think, but I'm calling the game because this isn't working. I mean, we don't know that that didn't happen. Well, here's the thing, too. And, again, everybody has their media guys they talk to behind the scenes, and then you hear stuff here and there. Nobody talks to me. Everybody hates me, so I don't know anything. But <laughs> you you would hear little things like, oh, you know, Urban meddles too much in the play. How can you meddle in your own thing? I mean, it, that would be like, um, I don't know, like if if my daughter said, I meddled too much in the selection of the clothes in her closet. I bought the clothes. And that's not called meddling, you know? So, like, that always bothered me. Like, okay, well, maybe if, if Urban Meyer's meddling, quote, meddling too much, maybe it's probably because you're not doing a very good job. Yeah. But you can't meddle in a thing that you own. So that always bothered me a little bit, and you'd hear stuff like that here and there. God, I end up ranting. I'm, I'm ranting too much. Just tell me. I'm ranting too much. I think you're you're giving very impassioned takes that make a lot of sense, but you're also ranting a little bit. I like the rants. I like the corporate point you made, and I liked the meddling in your daughter's closet with the clothes that you bought point. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about JT a little bit, okay? Um, here, Here's a question. This is a good two back-to-back -back questions from... Philip Schmelzer on Twitter, Twitter, who's at Philly1622. Let me give you both. Here's a thought I've been having. We all agree JT regressed under Beck, yet reports are that Joe Burrow and Dwayne Haskins just continue to get better and better. If that's actually true, which we can't know, then maybe Beck wasn't as responsible for the JT stuff. How do we come to grips with the idea 
that JT is not as good as he was in 2014, yet everybody, all the players were raving about Dwayne Haskins in bowl practice? Um, <clears throat> That's a good question. Is it, po- is it possible that the outside of Curtis Samuel, that the skill players who were working with Joe Burrow and Dwayne Haskins were better than the skill players who were working with JT Barrett on the field during games on Saturdays? Better at things like, like catching the ball. Better at things like playing wide receiver. <laughs> possible. Yeah, that's possible. I think it's a point that I think constantly bears repeating when we talk about JT Barrett and how upset everyone is with him. When he was awesome in 2014, he was surrounded by NFL talent. It doesn't mean he's bad. It means he was good with good players, which is like every quarterback who's good has good players around him, with the exception of Tom Brady. Um, but it is an interesting point that if, if Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow were turning heads, why wasn't JT better? And I, I think there's some truth to the fact that the guys that were around JT this year just weren't good. Certainly compared to 2014 when he had his best year at Ohio State, the talent level was just not the same, especially at the receiver position, and I'd argue on offensive line too. Um, JT Barrett was under a lot of duress this year and did not play well, and he takes some blame in that. But I, I you have to look at all 11 guys on the field, and all 11 guys were not all that good this year. Okay, I'm going to say it. I think that a guy like Dwayne Haskins has Deshaun Watson NFL quarterback potential. Based on what? Based on his size, his figure, the way he throws the ball, what I've seen from him during his recruiting process, the way that he was recruited, the fact that everybody wanted him, everything that we've heard. And you're right. I haven't watched him play uh, full go in practice against the scout team. But I don't think you can get a sense of a guy and what he's all about based on the way he's recruited and what they think of him when he comes in, right? They said that yeah. Dwayne Haskins threw the ball better than any high school player they'd ever seen, right? But he said he was the most advanced passer he had seen at that level uh, in his career. So, you know, a lot of the things that we think of, and, and if you go back to when JT was a freshman, what did we hear about all the time, Doug? Greatest leader ever. Nobody ever said JT Barrett is spiraling the ball. and Nobody nobody like Chris Worley sat there and said he makes throws NFL quarterbacks can't make. So I think that there's enough evidence for me to think that it's possible that Dwayne Haskins is just a better player than JT Barrett was at that age. And when is the time when a player develops the fastest? Between the time they step on campus and their redshirt year till the second season. Am I right? Yeah. So I do think that JT Barrett is a great college quarterback and has done great things. It's undeniable. But I think if things are supposed to go the way that they're supposed to go based on what we've heard and the way that the recruitment of Dwayne Haskins has gone, I would anticipate that when Dwayne Haskins is a junior and he's leading his team to the playoff, that he might be an NFL prospect when JT Barrett isn't. I think there's a difference between the type of player those two people are. I think there's also a difference in the type of quarterback that the offense needs. Unless they're willing to change it, and I'm not saying they aren't, but if the offense, if the offensive game plan and the style they want to play is what it was the last two years, then I don't know. Do we know that Dwayne Haskins can run the way JT Barrett does? I agree. Without even seeing Dwayne Haskins throw, that Dwayne Haskins is probably a better thrower than JT Barrett. Uh, not more than that. Um, so I wonder, like, if they're going to, unless Kevin Wilson's going to come in and change things to the point where it suits Dwayne Haskins more than it does JT Barrett, that I think JT Barrett 
does a very important thing for this offense better than anyone else in the quarterback room. There's also a, there's also a difference between playing games and being the guy who lights it up in practice. Yeah. And I've had a question. There's no consequence for failing in practice when you're the scout team. And, and so I've had that story written in my planner. I get a new planner every year. I still write things in a planner. I don't, like, put things on my phone. Do you guys write stuff down? Like, what you're yeah. going to do day-to-day and, like, stories you want to do? Yeah. You write it down. Bill has a notebook. I have a, a file on my desktop on my computer. I like to write it down. It makes it more real to me. So then I can re- realize that I've had a story. I think I asked Urban Meyer about it in spring football. Is or is Dwayne Haskins a good enough runner to run this offense? I haven't written it yet. I'm going to write it someday. I think it's a very big question. The one thing that happened with Cardale Jones to me was defining proof is Urban Meyer needs his quarterback to be able to run the zone read or this offense doesn't work. So Dwayne Haskins can throw it 90 yards, but if he can't run the zone read, this offense isn't going to work. Why Deshaun Watson is good is because he can do both wonderfully. He flicks it 50 yards and he runs the zone read. Um, but here's the thing I always thought, like with JT Barrett, this to me... I'm making this up. I, this might be completely wrong. But I always felt like with JT Barrett, you just needed the guy in his quarterback room to whisper in his ear that everything's okay. That JT Barrett, I think, is the guy who takes the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he takes a very big responsibility to be the leader of this team and get them fired up and do all those things. And I think you need someone who is his everyday coach who tells him, JT, let it go. Have confidence in yourself. When you you know the defense, you know this offense. Let it rip. Don't be worried about making a mistake. If you make a mistake, we'll have your back. All those things. I'm I'm not necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of other things that go into coaching that's probably more important. But that's what I questioned with the quarterback coaching the last couple of years was getting Cardale Jones and JT Barrett in the right frame of mind, and then putting plays in around them that highlight their best skills. I felt they didn't do that with Cardale. They didn't shape the offense to his skills. Um, I thought that was a big problem last year. That's more play calling. But that's, you know, and you have to coach each guy differently. So I I think it's possible that like Dwayne Haskins was doing good quarterback drills and practice and that kind of thing. But I still question the way the Ohio State quarterbacks were prepared for games physically and mentally over the last two years. So I think I don't think it's impossible for both those things to be true, for there to be questions about the way JT Barrett was coached and prepared, but also for there to be praise for the way people in practice saw the way Joe Burrow and Dwayne Haskins looked. Two thoughts. One, the only thing that we ever hear about people is praise. So you have to take a lot of what you hear with a grain of salt because nobody ever is going to say, well, Dwayne Haskins sucked the last year. He threw 14 picks in practice, right. Everybody always says that they're good, even when they're not. If you asked about Stephen Collier, and I'm not trying to to single him out, but we've asked about him, and he was never in the plan to play here, but coaches would say what? He's developing beautifully. He's going to be a real factor here one day. And it just, it just sometimes they say the things that aren't true but are the nice thing to say, and I think we've done a pretty good job of deciphering the difference between what's real and what's not. Second of all, Deshaun Watson does both of those things great, right? Because yep. we all know how much... Urban Meyer wanted Deshaun Watson at Ohio State. And it brings me back to a coaching clinic in Geneva, Ohio, two years ago, when a high school coach asked Urban at the coaching clinic, what's more important, talent or recruiting to your system and what you guys need? And 
basically rolled his eyes and said, talent, 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 talent. It's a lot easier to change your offense and what you do than it is to find a talented player. So who knows what Kevin Wilson's going to do and what, what it's going to look like. And maybe Dwayne Hassan's more like Cardale. But maybe Ohio State's coaching was the problem with Cardale last year. And the reason why they struggled is because they didn't adapt the way they needed to from an offensive standpoint. And now they're bringing in a guy like Kevin Wilson. And maybe even if Dwayne Haskins doesn't run the ball as well or do the zone read as well as JT Barrett, maybe that won't matter because they have the coaches in place now to evolve the offense around his strengths. Good points. All right. Sorry, I'm... I... Tyquan Lewis just announced he's coming back for his fifth year, so I'm working on that as we're podcasting. You know, should we take a break? Let's take a little pause. I'm I'm, I'm worried that people are going to catch the uh, the clicks on the computer. We can pause. It's not live, That's right? True. Yeah. All right, we're pausing, but you don't even know that. Did we pause? Didn't we? You don't even know. I might have just been making that up. It's the magic of podcasting. All right, Tyquan Lewis is staying. Let's do 30 seconds on Tyquan Lewis staying. Sam Hubbard is staying. Tyquan Lewis is staying. That's the two starting defensive ends. Jalen Holmes is staying. Nick Bosa obviously is staying. Those are the two backup defensive ends. Nick Bosa needs to play more. I'm not so sure Jalen Holmes doesn't need to play more. Like I, they, they have a crunch now at defensive end. Can't, doesn't Nick Bosa have to play more as a sophomore? His brother started as a freshman. Nick Bosa is supposedly better than him. We know Nick was coming off the ACL his senior year. So maybe that made sense for him to have a, a part-time role this year. But I thought Nick Bose would be a starter by the time he's a sophomore, and I don't know how that's going to work now. Doesn't matter. I mean, if if they if they rotate more and guys like Nick Bosa and Jalen Holmes just play more than they did, more than just playing in, in the Rushman package, I think that's okay. I don't think you can have too many talented defensive ends. I think this is a great thing. Again, too much talent for the Buckeyes to get tear them apart. What are they going to do, Ari? Sign one less five-star receiver. Seriously, all right, Ari also just tweeted, the crunch is real. And, and we've been tracking. We talked about this in the preseason. Um, there's some dudes who are going to have to go. There are some backups on this team who aren't going to be back next year. They're either going to magically decide on their own, in air quotes, that they want to leave, or they're going to be ushered aside or something. they they got to clear space, right, Ari? What are they? They're four or five over right now, right? If not what more? They, aren't they like six or seven over right now? Yeah, now that, uh, I'll pull up the scholarship chart real quick. Let's pause it again. You don't know it? We're just going to start pausing the podcast constantly. It just gets, I mean, I, I don't know it for sure because every day it changes and I get confused. So we've been tracking this, the there scholarship. Were 93 yesterday. So well, that's if you count, you were, but you were counting Torrance Gibson, who we think is going to leave, and you were counting, uh, Drew Crispin, the punter. Who we don't know for sure so is going to be. Conservatively, they're probably at ninety-two because I think Chrisman is a scholarship player, but he's not currently. I think that that was the deal. Like enroll early, pay your own way at the beginning, and then you become a scholarship player in year two. Deals get broken all the time, man. Wow, that's true. I got See, real. Real. With the seven, with the seventeen recruits, not counting. Gibson and Chrisman, they're at ninety-one. Counting Gibson and Chrisman, they're at ninety-three. Now, but is that counting like? La- Marshawn Lattimore and Marcus Paul. Yeah, Ball. yeah, yeah. Marshawn Lattimore, Mar- yeah. So it's, this is not counting all the guys who said they're leaving for the NFL. It is counting everyone else who we believe are still in the result. Okay, roster. so that's 91. So if Marshawn Lattimore goes, which is what we think he will, that's 90. Uh-huh. Marcus Baugh goes, which he certainly could, that's 89. Uh-huh. If Curtis Samuel goes, which he could, that's 88. Mm-hmm. We already have Gibson out. 
So conservatively, yes. they'll ha- they'll be three over of everybody who's left who could leave leaves without the unexpected departures. So that they're three over with the class of seventeen, but they don't want to so be. They're a- going to be roughly eight over if they get to twenty-two. No. Well, all right. There, if we if we give them if we say Samuel Baugh and Lattimore are leaving, and that's eighty-eight, right? Uh-huh. And that's with the seventeen in the class, and you think they're going to get to twenty-two? Yes. So you think they're going to add five more from where they are? So that's eight over. Two on Saturday. That's eight over. They're three over now at seventeen, and that's assuming all three of those guys go, which might not happen. So then that's eight over. So that's if you are a third string guy in your third season or later who has not played yet, be nervous. Yeah, like I think like Johnny Dixon basically told me he's gone without saying. All right, that's one of the eight. I think Stephen Collier basically said he's gone without saying it. That's two of the eight. You I think Kane, and then like now we're going to get into the speculation game, and we don't want to do that. No, but but that's what we're talking about. But I think the thing you can say, and we, I think we all feel very strongly about quote unquote running kids off. There are players on this team who have been with the program for four years, and I think you get four years, and then after that, if you're not productive and they want to move on, we're more okay with that, right? Than yeah, I don't telling think... a sophomore to get out of town. Yes. There are a couple of guys like that on this roster, and we're not going to like put out names because it's unfair. Right? Yeah, there are, there are more than one. There are a couple guys who will be redshirt seniors this year if they come back for a fifth year. But that's also, they in the past have had times when all of a sudden they'll come out with three or four or five guys who are taking medicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. This would be a little bit of new territory for them. If they came out and announced, hey, there's four guys who are seniors but with a fifth year of eligibility that aren't coming back. Or, hey, there's a couple more. That's still not going to get them there. Guys are going to transfer. There's this guy. Like, there, there are young guys who aren't going to play. And, like, it's not. They have, like, 12 backup linemen. Yeah. They're just I mean, if you want to play football, you have to go somewhere else. Like, and that, that's sort Taylor of the nature of the beast. going to transfer to Ohio. Like, I think that's going to happen. Who? I, didn't, I wasn't trying to mean specifically. I'm just saying, like, players like Brady Taylor are going to transfer. Because they want to play. It's like the Warren Ball move to Akron. Yeah. Right, but they're going to have to do that like six times. Yes. Life in the big city. All right, question. Uh, I had a Mike Weber question that I thought was a good question. Okay. From at J.R. Codet, K-O-D-E-T, Josh Codet. Should Mike Weber be the guaranteed starter next year at tailback? He seemed, there seemed to be a lack of trust and ball security issues. Ari, how good is J.K. Dobbins? From what I understand, he's like a stud. Like so, okay. So they'll have I Dobbins, mean, and they'll have Antonio Williams, and they'll have Mike Weber. And Demario McCall told me he's an H back. He's not a running back. I don't know when he's going to make that move. Um, so I think you're looking at a situation where you have three tailbacks: Weber, Antonio Williams, and J.K. Dobbins next year. Um. <laughs> I don't think he's guaranteed. I think maybe Antonio Williams can play his way into getting more carries, but you're talking about Williams and Dobbins, two guys. Williams played one game this year. Dobbins will be a true freshman. I think you still see a lot of Mike Weber next year. Yeah, 100%. I I, I think that J.K. Dobbins is kind of a smaller back, too. I mean, they want to compare him to Ezekiel Elliott a little bit because he's very versatile. Um, and he's like ranked as an all-purpose back, not a running back. And I think there is a slight distinction there. And I think maybe going through the weightlifting 
regimen that they have at Ohio State. He puts some meat on him, and then he turned into Ezekiel in year three. But, like, he, like, won the, like, skills. What's that spark challenge, Bill? That they do oh, in the Mikey one? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They measure your, like, athleticism based on, like, speed and flexibility and all these different measures that they took. And he was, like, the number one rated athlete in the country at that thing. So I think that he's, like, a, a real big-time player that might not get enough attention. I don't, I'm not going to be the guy who says, like, recruiting doesn't matter. Mike Mitchell, I think, won the Spark title many moons ago, didn't well, he, Ari? What's your point then, Doug? <laughs> recruiting doesn't matter. All these stars are crazy. J.K. Um, Dobbins is the number 42 overall player in the country and the number two all-purpose back. He's good. 5'9", 199 is what he's listed as. Good player. All right. Uh, loyal, loyal follower. I always wonder sometimes if, like, these are loyal Twitter followers are, like, our loyal Twitter followers or, like, if they follow everybody who covers Ohio State. We saw Fez the Buckeye cheating on us in Land of Ten, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, that's fine, but then I'm not going to give you the same kind of props. Like, if you want to just follow Ohio State, then you should follow lots of people. But, like, if you're our guy, then you're our guy. Yeah. So, I don't... I don't know if I want to play that game, though. We might have, like, four people on Twitter who would be our guys. We, we don't mean to scare anybody away. We are desperate. Yeah, we have. we are desperate for your attention. Portage Valley Hops. You guys know Portage Valley Hops, don't you? Oh, I saw that earlier and thought it was hoops and, like, thought it was a high school basketball team. No, it's like someone who grows beer. I don't really know how you make beer, but um, Portage Valley Hops is always loyal. Um, can you discuss the wide receiver coaching? Um and productivity, it seems a fair number of drop balls throughout the season. All right, so let's talk about the receiver stuff. There have been very good receivers here. I mean, like, again, that's not in dispute. The receivers this season were not very productive. Again, that's not in dispute. How do we sort of rectify those two separate things? Um, and I guess the two points are, let's look forward, um, what do we think of the job Zach Smith is doing, and what do we think the receivers are going to be like next year? I think it depends on who they play. If they're going to sort of play all the guys who played this year, I don't think they're going to be very good. If they play Austin Mack and Benjamin Victor, and I already wrote a story on Trayvon Grimes today, and I watched the, the two highlight tapes of Trayvon Grimes that he put in that post. That dude is awesome. Um, I didn't realize he was that big and like that long and that athletic. He looks like a stud, and if he doesn't play next year, they made a mistake. Because he said he's healthy, right, Ari? He said that it's gonna that he's on the Nick Bosa plan. And if you didn't read the story, he said that he had a different surgeon, but the same therapist. And the therapist compared his uh, his recovery to Bosa's, and they're on the same trajectory. So I think that means that he's going to go through the summer, continuing to rehab, and then he'll be ready to play on a limited basis. Um, in fall camp, so I think that might put him behind a little bit, but I think in his mind he's going to be full contact by the middle of uh, fall camp or the end of fall camp as they slowly bring him in, and hopefully in his mind uh, he'll be ready to go full go uh, by like the early weeks of the season to compete at the highest level. So what do you do? You do you think that those young guys, Victor Mack and Grimes, if he's healthy healthy enough to contribute, and Tyjon Lindsay who will be a freshman next year too. Um, and maybe Jalen Harris. And maybe Jalen Harris. Like, do they are they going to supplant the guys that are in place now? Is it going to be a rotation of fifteen wide receivers? Like, what's going to happen? You think? I, I think that you saw enough out of Ben Victor and Austin Mack 
for them to, in my mind, probably be the guys or, or take a good portion of the snaps next year above the guys who are coming back who are in the rotation this year. I don't know if Trayvon Grimes is going to be a starting receiver on this team as a freshman, especially because he's not enrolling early and he's coming off an injury. And Tyjon Lindsay's like 5'9", 170. So I, I think that those guys are going to be in the plan in, in the future. But I think a guy like Austin Mack, who enrolled early and was awesome from what the coaches said from the beginning, and grew, and a guy like Ben Victor, who caught a, a slant in the playoff, which I think is a good sign when you're talking about young people who actually get a chance to play in big games. I think there's a chance that Ben Victor, Austin Mack, and Noah Brown are the three next year. That'd be interesting. All right, but answer the hard part. What's the, What's hard, the part? hard part? What's up with Zach Smith? I think we talked about that like ad nauseum. Like we don't think he's a very good position coach. Okay, I just wanted to say it again. I just wanted to say it again. They're not going. It goes back to what Ari was saying at the very beginning of the podcast. You know, teacher motor slash recruiter Zach Smith has been an awesome recruiter for Ohio State. I don't think that's in in dispute. So I don't know. Do you have to sort of live with the development of the receivers if Zach Smith's going to keep recruiting the guys he's recruiting, or can anybody do what he's doing? Well, the question I have too, and I've always wondered this to myself, and maybe I'm just an idiot. You guys can call me an idiot. But, like, out of all the positions on the football field, I feel like the receiver position is the least valuable when it comes to development. Like, I know that running routes and being crisp and having timing with the quarterbacks are all important, but I feel like developing a really talented receiver who's got the physical tools already would be the easiest position to develop out of any position on the field. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I It's probably a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think, like... When you are, um, when you're taking, when you're bringing in like an offensive lineman who's like a big guy and you've got to like tear him down to build him back up and teach him the fine points of all that stuff, I think that's probably a little more goes into it than Mm -hmm. like a fast, tall guy and it's like, hey, make sure when you run your route that you make it really crisp or whatever. I mean, obviously there's a lot of technical things and everybody loves to talk about technique and technique and technique. But I, I think you might be onto something there. Um, all right, this this guy is always up my butt, and I appreciate it. I like it because if we're trying to keep the coaches hold the coaches accountable, um, then people should hold us accountable and tell us that I suck at my job. So it's my boy Nathan at G Nilly ninety seven. You know him. You yeah. know him. You guys know G Nilly. Couple questions. Could any decently mobile QB put up big numbers in Urban's offense? If so, what is special about JT? And why is the Ohio State media more pro JT Barrett than the fans are? Uh, I guess to answer the first question, no. Um, decently mobile and like ability to run inside between the tackles are two things. And we've said this before. I know I've said it before. JT Barrett, once he decides to, once he makes a decision to run the ball, he is a running back. He's not a running quarterback. He runs the ball. I think has the vision of a running back. Uh, does not shy away from contact. That's different, way different to me uh, than decently mobile. Um, decently mobile to me means you can like sidestep a sack, step up in the pocket, or like move laterally long enough to make a play down the field with your arm. Um, there are a lot of guys, not a lot, but but more than a handful, I think, who, who have that skill set. I think doing what JT Barrett does is different. And I'm not an expert on college football to know enough about how many other quarterbacks in the country do what he does in terms of running the football inside physically. Um, but I bet there's less than five in the country who do it close to as well as JT Barrett does. 
Did Ari leave us? No, I, I, I'm just thinking about it. The thing, the thought you, that I had. Very no thinking. You're, there's no thinking when you're on the phone. Yeah. You got a hot take it, baby. Well, I was thinking, and I'm like, apparently not allowed to do that. Bill, you know I would never leave you. <laughs> I was watching some of the other bowl games, and I was watching the Penn State game. And I was watching closely at Trace McSorley, who was a three-star prospect who I thought played awesome in that game. And I was thinking to myself, how many yards of offense would he put up in Ohio State's offense? I would argue not a lot. It's a different okay. type. It's a different type of running. Outside, running the quarterback outside is way different than running the quarterback inside, in my mind. Um, and I'm not saying that Urban Meyer's offense can't be successful without that, but. Um, his best offenses have come with Tim Tebow at quarterback and with JT Barrett at quarterback, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because they have a very specific skill set that allows them to run inside, and Trace McSorley weighs 140 pounds, and if he tried to run between the tackles, I think he'd get destroyed. And they also just recruited a kid that weighs 160 pounds. Yeah. So, I, I just... It's, we, we've done an hour-long po- podcast on quarterbacks, and who would be successful in what, and that question is its own podcast. Who, what about the part, why is the Ohio State media more pro-JT Baird than the fans are? I mean, the, the whole point of that question is, do you agree with the premise of the question? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with it because the reaction to JT Baird announcing he was coming back was, like, largely negative. And I don't know if you guys experienced the same thing, but there were people who were upset that the two-time Big Ten quarterback of the year was coming back to Ohio State. And I get that because, like, we're not fans, so we don't get caught up in the emotion of things. And we're not upset that Ohio State lost. Um, so if you're upset that Ohio State lost and you think JT Barrett's the reason for that, I guess I can see why you'd be angry that that guy was coming back for a, for a fifth season. Um, I am of the mind that JT Barrett had a bad season but is still a pretty good quarterback, good college quarterback. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Um I don't think that maybe he should be handed the starting job next year, but I think that if he was put in a competition, he'd still win it because I think there's a good quarterback there who was put in a bad situation and didn't play well in 2016. I think a lot of people feel the need to defend him in the media, and I don't know why. Here's what I think. I think that... During the season, people were talking about JT Barrett as a Heisman candidate, right? Remember that? I wasn't, yeah. No, but that's what, but like, I think like some media were, right? Yeah. And I don't think we ever agreed with that. So I think there was a time when we were like, when we were more critical of JT Barrett than most of the media was. Um, but now, I feel like all of a sudden I've turned into a JT Barrett defender, Um Against people who think like, who, who, uh, who, uh, the angriest fans. And again, like, Twitter is not a representation of the world in anything. Twitter is the angry minority slice of, of everything. Um, but there's a lot of people who are like, uh, you know, who are ready to move on from him. At least some segment of people. Um, and I think that's crazy. So, I, I think the Ohio State media did overhype him as a group for a while um, when he wasn't that player. I mean, he's not Deshaun Watson, and I don't know why anybody, and I felt like for a while people pretended that he was, and I don't know why that ever happened. Um, and people talking about that he's, I mean, people are theorizing he's the greatest quarterback in Ohio State history. 
Not true. False. I mean, statistically, he is. But, but I mean, that, yeah. I mean, again, Ohio State didn't throw the ball for a hundred years, yeah. so I mean, he's not he's not better than Troy Smith. You know, like he's. He, he, I mean, Braxton Miller and Terrell Pryor and Joe Germain and Rex Kern and I mean, there, there's a lot of guys. Cornelius Green. I mean, there's a lot of guys that you could look at in different ways that would compare with JT Barrett in, in a lot of ways, I mean, again, not statistically, because now we're in the Urban Meyer era, not in the Woody Hayes or the Jim Trestle era. Um, but I think that was crazy. I mean, you can't just look at, oh, he's put up, he threw for this many touchdowns and, and he's the best quarterback. That's not true. But I also don't think he's a get run out of town guy at all. So, I mean, whatever, whatever this in between is, I'm happy to occupy the in between. Um, but I, I don't, I mean, it's, I, I do understand it because it's just fans are frustrated. And people always want what's next. But I do feel like for that small minority slice on Twitter, that reaction of like, let's get the next guy in there. This guy cannot get it done. Um, I think that's almost like factually incorrect. Because to me, it boils down to, and tell me if you disagree with this, JT Barrett. And, and I think there's two different things we're talking about here. One is quarterback, and one is thrower. And I think Bill has made some very good points about JT's somewhat unique ability as a runner that must be factored in to the discussion of him as a quarterback, particularly in the Urban Meyer system. If you ignore that component of it, you're not in the correct discussion. So much of this actually focuses on JT Barrett, the thrower, which is only a component of JT Barrett's quarterback. But I think JT Barrett, the thrower, was a better thrower in 2014. I don't know exactly still 100% why he wasn't as good in 2016, but I think in 2017 he can be better than he was in 2016, and if he's more like 2014, and then even takes logical progression past that because he's older, I think he could be a very good overall quarterback still, yes or no? I agree with that. I want to know what Ari's answer is, because I think Ari might view JT a little differently than you and I do. Why? I don't know. I just get that vibe. If I'm wrong, tell me. But I, I'm just curious, like, generally, what you think about JT. I think JT is a very good college quarterback, and I think that he is at his best when he is surrounded by very good players and experienced players who can make plays. And I think that how good he is in this offense varies based on that. And I think the reason why it seems like he regressed the last few years is because the talent around him regressed. Um, from, I mean, maybe not in 2015, obviously, because everybody came back from that team. But obviously everybody remembers what was going on with the Cardale musical chairs at quarterback. I, I think that there was a chance that next year with the proper coaching and the right system and advanced skill position players around him that he could return to form. Um, of the 2014 season, and the one thing I wish we knew the answer to that we'll never know is whether or not he was good enough to win them a national championship in 2014 because he did the part that he's always done, and that's mow the Big Ten over. But I just wonder at the level that he played against a team like Clemson at that stage if he's equipped to be good enough to do that. And maybe you as a coach could answer that question in your heart and by yourself, and maybe you might think, hey, Cardale gave us the tools that we absolutely needed to win a championship in 2014. And I think there are some questions as to whether or not I think he could throw for 50 touchdowns or account for 50 touchdowns in the 10 game season in the Big Ten. 
I don't know if I would think that he is good enough to win them a championship. Is that crazy? Do you think he was bad against Clemson? I don't know if he was bad. I think that the entire offense as a whole was struggling. And in that scenario, it falls back on the quarterback. I'm not going to say he's completely to blame. But the one thing that I will agree with Doug on is, is I think people wanted to make him Deshaun Watson. And the one thing to me that is abundantly clear is that he is not good enough or is not a dynamic enough talent to win a game by himself unless you consider running a quarterback dive and scoring from the five, winning it by yourself. Do you see the distinction between those two things? I guess so, but I would argue that there isn't a quarterback in college football good enough to win a game by himself. Even Deshaun Watson, who's really good. And I just, I'm just i saying that I think that he is a mid-tier quarterback that is good for Ohio State's system, mm-hmm. and I think that he works well at Ohio State, and Ohio State's been super successful with him for a reason. I don't think he's Deshaun Watson. That's my take. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he's in the top tier of college quarterbacks either. So here's the thing that I keep going back to. And I posted, I tweeted this the other day, like, it's the throw that we always talk about, the Michigan State throw to Devin Smith on the sideline. That Michigan State game was a revenge game that they had aimed at all year, this is in 2014, on the road against a very good Michigan State team that had a good offense that could score points and a good secondary, right? JT Barrett, JT Barrett didn't throw 70 times. JT Barrett was 16 of 26. For 300 yards, three touchdowns, ran it 14 times for 86 yards, and ran for two touchdowns. Ohio State won 49-37 in a game where they were going to have to score five touchdowns. Michigan State had a late score, but they were going to have to score five touchdowns to win that game on the road. That was a huge game. And he stepped up as a redshirt freshman and was up to the challenge. And he threw it with confidence. And that's the guy that still, I just can't believe that if that guy existed on that night in that game, that he's gone forever. JT Barrett, as a redshirt freshman, I double-checked this last night. And this is the stat that everybody uses now, right? Yards per attempt, throwing. He averaged nine yards per attempt. That's really good. Throwing it in 2014. This The last two years, and again, last year he was like a red zone quarterback, so when he did play, like his stats are going to be off, right? But I think he was like 6.7 yards per attempt, and the same this year, 6.7 I think it is. In the first four games of this season, he was over 8 yards per attempt. That's lighting up Bowling Green and Rutgers, and even there was a game in there where he didn't throw for a ton of yards, but he didn't throw it much, so the yards per attempt were good. The last nine games of the year, he was six yards per attempt, which is, if you took that six yards and put it in the context of the whole season, would rank like 120th in college football. I yeah. mean, that is unbelievable. That is nothing. That is nothing down the field, and everything you throw is little dinky dunky stuff, or, or you're just missing on every deep throw. I mean, that, and that guy in 2014, I know Devin Smith is gone, and I know Michael Thomas is gone. I can't believe that guy who beat Michigan State on the road over the last nine games of a year when they got to the playoff averaged six yards per attempt. That was the thing that I, I wrote before the, the playoff game that plenty of national champions haven't been able to throw or haven't been great throwing teams, which was true because I think only one of the last ten has been a top 50 passing offense. 
But the thing that all those teams had in common was the yards per attempt was all very high, which is you run the ball and you take shots downfield, which is like a thing they've been wanting to do for the past two years and haven't been able to do. Um, and it's sort of a three-pronged thing. It's having the time to do it, having the guys that can open it, and having the confidence in your arm to throw the ball. Um, he didn't have much of the first two at all. And I think the third thing was lacking and like increasingly lacking as the year wore on. He seemed much less confident in his ability to push the ball downfield. But we've seen it. That 2014 game, that throw, I watched that throw like 10 times a year just to remind myself that JT Barrett can be good. That was like a ball that was thrown like, what, 30 yards down the field, tight tight to the sideline, and a guy who wasn't completely wide open but put in the place where only he could catch it was a perfect throw. It's beautiful. It almost brings a tear to my eye. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I tweeted it. Go to at Douglas Maurice. What's today? I, can't, I don't know what day it is. Thursday. On Wednesday night, I tweeted it out, the gif or gif of it. And it's, you almost, I want to put like a symphony behind it. It's <laughs> such a beautiful ball. It's a perfect spiral. It's not a moonshot, but it's not on a line. It's like perfectly in between. It's along the sideline where only Devin Smith can catch it. You can tell that he is kind of throwing it as hard as he can throw it, but the ball doesn't react that way. And then also, by the way, Devin Smith. Oh my gosh. He catches it like he's in your backyard. He just sticks his hands out and grabs it like no big deal. It is, ah, like I want to sing opera thinking yeah. about that. So that's, but that's why in all this stuff of who I'm critical of and who I'm not critical of as much in this whole Ohio State offensive discussion, I'm critical most of the people I've never seen it from. Tim Beck, here. I've never seen it. I've seen it from JT Barrett. I've seen Ed Warner do a component of his job very well. We haven't ever seen Ed Warner as a play caller on his own be great. But I'm less critical of Ed Warner because I've seen him help Ohio State. I think he was pushed into the wrong role with this, but he has helped Ohio State. And everybody's seen it with Urban Meyer. So that's how I view things. I think Ohio State got to the playoff when they shouldn't have, and I think they won a lot of games with a faulty offense. But I think there are a lot of people involved with that offense who have done it before. Again, like the receiving core. This group of receivers, we never really saw it from this group of receivers, but we've seen Ohio State receivers in general do it before. So that's why I don't think you just say the heck with it and move on to everybody new because there are still people involved in the process who have done it before. How do we think, though, and I guess this might open up a whole other can of worms that might lead to another podcast, but just, just like real quick, we have an idea now of who's coming back especially offensive skill, who's coming back. Is it open competition, or are the guys who are coming back going to be the guys? And that includes JT Barrett, and that includes the wide receivers. I'll go first, Ari, then you can go. Open competition at receiver, not open competition at quarterback. Some competition at running back. I just don't think we can pretend that fifth-year seniors who have started 30 games just get thrown into open competitions all the time. Like, people are like, well, of course there should some some minority slice of Twitter, like, of course it should be a competition. Everybody, I mean, that's just not, that's just not how it is. Yes, everybody competes. You want to be pushed, all that. It is not, it can, it's not a true open competition to say, let's take two guys at quarterback who have literally basically never played and say, okay, here we go. Guy who's 26 and four is a starter. You are on equal footing at the start of spring practice with Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow. I don't think that's realistic. And I don't, I don't think that's how it should be or will be. All right, Ari, go. Open competition at wide receiver, somewhat of a competition at running back, reshuffling in competition on the offensive line, and I don't know, man. 
Probably not a quarterback. Probably not a quarterback. But I could see, like you said in your column that you wrote this week, that there could be some help. Some form of multi-quarterbacks, multiple quarterbacks being used. Potentially. But I don't know. I, I think that what I think is most likely is that they feel better about their coaching. They're more aggressive offensively. The receivers become better, whether it's because the young guys that were highly recruited take a step forward or people are a year more advanced. And I think that JT Barrett feels more like his 2014 self next year because the team around him is better offensively. And I think that he could potentially regain his form as a dominant quarterback in Big Ten play. And then I think the question would remain. And I think there's a very good chance that Ohio State does that, gets back to the playoff, and then you question whether or not he can win it for you. The thing that I'm, like, what I'm saying at, like, open competition is, like, not 2015, right? Like, not like, hey, Urban, who's your quarterback? I don't know. We'll see. Not like the, and not the possibility that, like, if JT Barrett, quote, loses the competition, that he doesn't play at all. Like, that's what an open competition is, that someone could lose the job and then not play at all. I, that is not what's going to happen with JT Barrett, and I can't understand if you think that that's what it should be. You know, again, if you want to work somebody in or find a solution, okay. But like the idea of the guy who's twenty six and four is back, it's wide open. Oh well, I picked Dwayne Haskins. JT only will play if somebody gets hurt. That's crazy to me. I don't think there's any any chance that we're sitting in the press box game one with our binoculars looking down at who's throwing on the sideline in Indiana. Yeah, and again, I think I think that JT is going to be the quarterback, and whether or not they add somebody to the role as a supplementary piece will be the storyline, not whether or not JT's going to eat bench. <laughs> I'm especially not going to be doing that because I left my binoculars in the press box at the Fiesta Bowl. I'm still... Oh, did you make the call? I'll go get them for you. Man. I know. I made the call. The guy didn't get back to me. I, I, I got to figure it out. Can you just go storm the stadium and just, like, demand my stuff? I think it might just be easier if I went to Walmart and buy a new pair of Hanukkah. <laughs> Carson Palmer stole them anyway. All right, that's it. Too much ranting. We went too long. I, it's all like this is oh, a tremendous college football program is changing. Yeah, and that's interesting. It's going to be interesting spring football. We're going to have some new guys to talk to. I am very excited for spring football. That's interesting. I thought like spring twenty fifteen was incredibly boring, and I thought we were heading to that again, and we're not. It's going to be awesome. Stick with us. Um, Ari's going to be working some really good recruiting stuff out in Arizona. Bill is all over basketball. All of us are dealing with football and what is ahead with NFL decisions, with coaching, finalizing coaching things. Uh, signing day is not that far away. February 1st, right around the corner. Um, once we get all the NFL decisions in, we will reset the projected starting lineups. Yeah on cleveland.com slash OSU. We will write that down and give that to you, what we think the two deep looks like at the moment. I know you guys are interested in that. So thanks for hanging with us all year. Keep us honest. Uh, get in the comments at cleveland.com and tell us where we screw up. Tweet at us, at Ari Wasserman, at Bill Landis 25 and tell us where we screw up. I can't remember my Twitter handle at the moment, or I'd tell you that too. At um, Doug Maurice. Oh, shoot. Um, so anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, Interesting stuff. This is a really, again, this is a really interesting team to cover. Win or even after the occasional loss. Very, very interesting to cover. So, for Ari in Arizona, for Bill, and for me in my basement, thanks for listening. And that was Buckeye Talk.